And it's great to see you this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church. And uh, I know Ricky already welcomed you, but I want to welcome you this morning as well. Um, Ricky mentioned something earlier that we have started a new series called The Beatitudes, and we're walking through, uh, believe it or not, The Beatitudes. And so uh, this is actually week two of our new series, and so I'm going to catch you up here in just a moment so that you know kind of what we talked about last week, can we kind of introduce the Beatitudes, the, the context that we find them in, uh, really what they're about, and then what we're going to do is each week we're just going to walk through kind of verse by verse looking at this um, this teaching of Jesus. And so when you walked in this morning, hopefully everybody was handed um, what we call a worship guide. Inside of it is a schedule of where we're going over the next uh, six weeks now, um, six more weeks. And so we always do this for a couple reasons. One, it just gives you a heads up. It no- lets you know where we're going um, and, and that way you can kind of follow along. But also as an encouragement that um, maybe before le- the week leading up to, to, to Sunday, uh, that maybe you take some time to just read and study or think and pray about the topic or the scripture that we're going to be covering uh, on Sunday morning, just to kind of prepare your mind and your heart and your life uh, for all that we're going to do and, and learn. Um, so you can see kind of how we're going to walk through the Beatitudes together, um, what, what it will now be over the next six weeks. And I made this challenge last week, I'll continue it this week, that um, I'm challenging all of us, all of our church to work on memorizing the Beatitudes. So if you take them in their entirety, including the introduction, it's 12 verses. But given the fact that we're going to preach through it for eight weeks, um, it means that you really just have to do like a verse and a half a week. Um, and anybody can do that. Even if you have a terrible memory, you can memorize one sentence in a whole week. And so my challenge is to do that. Um, and it makes memorizing scripture a little less intimidating if you can do it in little pieces. And before you know it, September will be here uh, and everyone in our church will memorize the Beatitudes and um, we've talked about it before, just the, the power that Scripture has in our lives. And when you can um, memorize it and hide it inside of you, um, it'll come out in ways that you never expect. On the back side of your worship guide is a place for you to take notes. Um, every preacher is different. And I am not one of the creative preachers that can come up with like three really good one-liners. They all start with the same letter and then ended up all rhyming. That is not me. I'm just not very good at coming up with points and cute little sayings and fill in the blanks. Um, And so what we do is we provide this space so that as we're talking today and as we look at different scriptures or maybe um, we think about some concepts, my encouragement is to to you is to write down things uh, that may be important to you or that you want to think more about or maybe even something that you don't understand. Um, And as you write those down, it'll spark your memory later so that you can think about it or talk about it or research it um, or even ask me uh, if that's something that you want to do and we can talk about it. But that space is there for you as well. So let's let's get started. That's enough introduction uh, stuff. So we are talking about the Beatitudes and the Beatitudes uh, are a poetic introduction to Jesus's most famous sermon that he ever preached. We often call the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And so if it's the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached, then that would literally make it the most famous sermon in the history of of the world. And so so to begin his sermon, Jesus gives us a sort of poetic introduction. And all of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole sermon, um, the big point is that Jesus is trying to get the audience, those he's speaking to, to rethink how they view the world, to rethink how they view their own lives, to rethink how they see and understand God and how they relate to God. He's trying to 
to change and reform and reformat everyone's mindsets so that they can understand uh, how life really works, how the world really works, how God truly is and how he works in this world. And so to begin that sermon, he does sort of a poetic introduction that we call the Beatitudes. The reason we call it the Beatitudes is because it comes from the Latin beatitudo, which literally just means blessed or happy. And as Ricky read uh, the, all of the Beatitudes earlier, and we'll read a few today, you can see why it gets that name for Latin meaning blessed. Uh, so let me, let me kind of remind you of some of the things that we talked about last week that really, just like all of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are really comparing how God's economy works versus the world's economy. And we're all looking and interested and in, in wanting to know how can we be happy? How can we count our lives as blessed? And Jesus wants to teach us how blessed, uh, blessedness, how happiness works in God's kingdom Uh, and God's economy versus the world's economy. And so this is kind of the context that he's setting up. Um, And so we looked at a couple, uh, a few things last week. First of all is that Matthew, who's the author of the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today, um, he uh, does something very interesting for us in that he paints two pictures of Jesus and then marries them together. And it's this idea that Jesus is both, uh, both teacher and miracle worker. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So we get two pictures of Jesus here. The teaching, and then the healing, or the miracles. But what's cool is is Matthew literally says that exact same thing, almost word for word, about five chapters later. And, and, and throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the surrounding material, we get this really clear picture that Jesus is both teacher and miracle worker, and Matthew wants to marry those two together because he doesn't want us to fall into a trap of separating either one of those aspects from the real Jesus. It's really tempting to pick one aspect of Jesus that we like more than the other. Some people love Jesus, the ethical teacher. They love what he teaches about life and humanity. But when it comes to the miracles, they get weirded out. Um, They don't really understand him. It doesn't fit into their naturalistic worldview. And so they're like, I love the ethical teacher, Jesus, but, but I don't really want the spooky, supernatural miracle stuff. Other people are exact opposite. They're like, I love Jesus, the miracle worker, but I'm not that interested in Jesus, the teacher. I want Jesus to come in and fix my life, make it better. Um, fill my bank account, get rid of my boss, make me happy, do things that I don't have the power to do for myself, be that little genie in a bottle for me, be the miracle worker, but I'm not that interested in Jesus the teacher. Don't tell me to love my enemies. Don't tell me to pray for those who persecute me. Don't tell me not to lust. Just do your magic, but, but don't tell me, don't intrude into my life and tell me how to live my life. And people often want to separate the two, and Matthew says, no, 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 you can't. The t- are completely tied together. And so kind of first observation that we made last week. Um, second is the audience, that Jesus is at the same time talking to his disciples as well as a very large crowd of people. And so um, at the same time, Jesus is doing two things. One, he's talking to his disciples, which are the people who have left everything to follow him. 
And so when we talk about the disciples, um, we're talking about a group of men. Usually we're talking about 12 men, but sometimes it gets expanded to just meaning any man or woman who has left everything to follow Jesus. But at the same time, Jesus is talking to the crowds, those who haven't left everything to follow him, those who might not have left anything behind to follow him, but they're there to listen and to investigate about who Jesus is and what it is that he's about and what he's teaching. And so Jesus... at at the same time as teaching a group of people who've given up everything to follow him and a group of people who are just here to check him out. And um, we said this last week, and I want to say it again, that Element Church seeks to be that same place, a place where for those who have given up everything to follow Jesus, that this is a place that you can come and you can learn and grow and be challenged and, and be encouraged, but also a place for those who haven't given up everything to follow Jesus because they're just here to figure out who Jesus is. They want to know what he teaches and what he's all about and what it means to be a disciple. Um, a lot of times we'll refer in Element Church to a disciple as someone who is a follower of Christ, someone who has given up everything or has given up much and would be willing to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. As much as we can, we try to avoid the term Christian in Element Church, mostly because it's just formed with a lot of baggage. And there, in, in our society and culture, there's a lot of freedom and room to define Christian however you want. Nearly 80% of our country would call themselves a Christian, um, but not 80% of our country follows Jesus and has given up their lives to pursue him and to follow him. And so we try to make that distinction here by just saying um, a lot of times we'll call a disciple a follower of Christ and so no matter who you are today whether you've given up everything or nothing and you're just here to investigate to check it out um, you're welcome in this place because you are also welcome in the presence of Jesus and then our third observation that we made last week um, is that the purpose of the Beatitudes is both celebration and invitation that it's a celebration for those disciples so that they can understand that because they've left everything to follow Jesus, um, Jesus is, is going to tell them what, what they currently possess and what they will also possess in the future because of that. But it's also an invitation to the crowd. Those who are just there to learn and investigate. As Jesus is saying, this is what could be yours. And so that holds true for us today in Element Church as well. That this is a celebration for you if you call yourself a follower of Christ because Jesus is going to redefine how life works in God's economy um, to the benefit of those who have given up everything to follow him. Uh, but it's also an invitation for those who are just investigating so that you can get a picture of what it's like to be a follower of Christ and what promises can be uh, true for you as well. So that's what we talked about last week. Of course, last week it took me 40 minutes to say all that. So um, you guys away? Okay, I was faster this week. That's right. Now, I'm not going to be faster on this next part. So it's going to take me 30 minutes again, and then I'll summarize it in three minutes next week. Okay. All right. So let's everybody, if you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Matthew chapter five. If you brought your Bible, great. Open it up. We've provided some if you want to use one of ours. If you don't own a Bible or you don't like the one you do own, we always encourage you to keep that Bible as our gift to you today. Um, And then it's also going to be on the screen uh, for you as well. So we're going to start, and we're going to read the first four verses of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And so it says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, that's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount, uh, up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now there are eight Beatitudes 
And we're going to teach them in seven weeks. And we're actually combining the first two this week. And as we get deeper into it, I'll kind of explain to you why we chose to do that. Um, So when you look at this, go back to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now what does it mean to be poor? I mean, this is a strange statement. I bet outside of this statement by Jesus... And the only reason you would be familiar with it is because you're in church now, you've been in church, you have a history in church, you've heard or read the Beatitudes, maybe you have some um, cheesy Christian coffee mug with the Beatitudes printed on it or something like that. Um, So you would be familiar with, are you guys awake? I thought that was kind of funny, I was just being goofy, but... um, So you're familiar with this idea of poor in spirit, at least familiar with the phrase. But that's not something we really use very often. What is Jesus trying to communicate? Well, what does it mean to be poor? I mean, if you take in the spirit out of it, you just think about being poor. um, I think most of us could define it or at least understand it, that that it's being without, it's being in need. It's not having the ability to provide for yourself or to sustain yourself um, that you're lacking ultimately. And so Jesus is going to qualify what he means. That, that for those who are poor in spirit, he says. So not just poor in general, not just those who are lacking in general. You're lacking in your checking account or you're lacking in um, some other aspect. But specifically, those who are poor, lacking in spirit, are going to be blessed. That in God's economy, despite what the world may teach, those who are lacking in spirit are going to find reward and blessing what does jesus mean by that uh i think in our society um you've got this interesting idea um i've heard this a number of times and part of it's because i'm a pastor and so i have a lot of spiritual conversations with people um and and i look for opportunities wherever i go to um to talk about what I do, what I'm passionate about, what I believe in, what's changed my life, how I live my life. Um, and, and so, you know, different opportunities come up in, in different ways. I, I've got a Greek word tattooed on my wrist, which comes uh, directly from the New Testament. And so that's usually a conversation starter. People, um, 99.9% of people can't read Greek. And so when they see it, they ask, uh, what language is that? What does it say? And then, and then it begs it begs explanation because it literally means bondservant. It says doulos, which is Greek for bondservant. Um, nobody knows what that means. So it begs follow-up from people. And so I love to have spiritual conversations. But um, it, maybe you've heard this or experienced this, but um, sometimes I get responses from people when talking about faith or talking about spiritual things that, that, that faith, or maybe Christianity in particular, because um, that's what I believe in and follow and adhere to, and so that's usually what they're referencing. Um, they'll, they'll make a derogatory statement, something along the lines of, yeah, well, well I don't believe because I really think that Christianity or faith or religion is, is a crutch for those who, who can't handle life, for those who can't handle loss, for those who are scared about the afterlife or scared about the future. That, that really is just a crutch for those who can't, can't do it on their own or are scared about some other options. And, and here's what I find interesting about that thought and that statement is um, it's used in a derogatory way. Um, but, but here's what's interesting. If, if you watch somebody um, who's had an injury and is walking with crutches, uh, crutches are a really good thing if you're in need of them. Crutches are a powerful thing. Um, you, you, you've had to use them pretty recently. 
had some major knee surgery. Um, you don't look at somebody on crutches and think, oh man, they're pathetic. They can't make it on their own. That's ridiculous. They should get rid of the crutches. No, the crutches are necessary um, when you're in need. And there's this criticism that faith or religion or Christianity can be a crutch as though crutches are a bad thing. Um, but nobody would say that to somebody who physically needs a crutch uh, for help. Um, but it's interesting, and here's why that statement is made, is because uh, it flies in the face, uh, religion, Christianity, being a follower of Christ, flies in the face of everything that our society says matters and is important. See, crutches aren't needed because in our society, in our culture, we're told um, that what matters most is that you can handle life on your own, that you can get whatever you want on your own, and that the ultimate supreme ideals are self-reliance, self-determination, and self-esteem. It's all about you. Um, I'm not much of a magazine reader. I I read a few magazines. These aren't it. Um, Usually it consists of Field and Stream um, and and things like that. but just looking at the magazine aisle at any store, um, all of them, for the most part, are about uh, how you can better yourself. How you understand that there's something lacking in your life, but you're the ticket, you're the answer. You, uh, finding your zen to stop stress and, ex- and, and exi- ex- excuse me, anxiety. Um, six ways to win in life says Ladies Home Journal, and I'm sure they're right. Um, Red Book. I, so I haven't even opened these magazines, but, but I thought there were some, some good things. There were also some really good magazines that had great ones that I would love to have used, but it have been terribly inappropriate to use them on Sunday morning from the stage. And so I had to be very selective about which ones. Um, how to Live Happier on Your Paycheck. Double Your Energy, Proven Ways to De-Stress and Recharge. Um, here's um, Sophia... How do you say her last name from Modern Family? Um, She's going to give you advice on finding true love. And it basically amounts to find love that you don't have to work for, which is strange. Um, Doesn't seem to be my experience. So um, can you really detox? That's probably holding you back in life. um, Six moves that'll do it all. Oh, 194 ways to be your most amazing. If you're feeling in great need, and you feel like you need to pick me up and you need to do better in life, I don't know what would be more depressing than knowing you had 194 items on your to-do list to get better. That, I mean, that's not encouraging. That's depressing. Um, but everything about our culture says that um, it's all about you and you fixing yourself and you taking yourself to the next level. And so, so being Christianity, being a follower of Christ, being a crutch is counterintuitive to most people because they say you you should do it on your own and if you need something else to do it for you you're weak and you're missing out being happy being blessed in the world's economy means uh, going out there and getting it for yourself if you want to be happy go find what makes you happy and go chase it down You want to count your life as blessed? Define what blessed means for you and then go hunt it down. Go go do whatever it takes to find it. And and Jesus is going to redefine what it means for us. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are those who seek blessings. Not happy are those who are chasing after happiness. Not blessed are those who can pick themselves up by their bootstraps every morning and get it done. Not blessed are those who get up the earliest and stay up the latest and work the most hours. Not blessed are those who accomplish the 194 to-do list. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. There's a lot of people in the Bible that we get images of who are very, very poor in spirit. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Job uh, in the Old Testament. Job had everything going for him. The Bible has incredibly positive, encouraging things to say about Job, um, that, that among men, he was the most righteous. If you, if you make it into the Bible, that's the statement you want said about you. There are some people who not so nice things are said about them in the Bible, but for Job, to be able to say among all the men on the earth, Job was the most righteous. Um, that's a pretty big uh, encouragement. That, that's a big deal. And Job had everything stripped from him and, and was suffering. And he was questioning and wondering why and trying to figure uh, life out, trying to figure out what was going wrong. He had everything. He lost it all. Job says this in chapter 42. This is going to be up on the screen, so you don't have to turn there. In verse 5, he says this, I had heard of you. He's talking to God um, after a long, long battle, back and forth between him and God about what's going on. And he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I had heard of you, but now I see you. Job says, I knew about you, but now I I know you. I knew about you, but now I know you. And his response, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There was another man in the Old Testament named Isaiah, who was a priest, um, who played a significant role in in the Israelite people. Um, And there comes a moment where he himself also comes before the presence of God in a new and powerful way that he had never, never experienced before, just like Job. And in Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And so Isaiah, in a time of turmoil in his own personal life, and that of, also that of his nation, is in the temple offering sacrifices, and he sees God, and it says this, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he covered, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook in the vo- at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So, so Isaiah has this vision of the Lord. He comes before God's presence, but notice he never describes what God looks like. All he can, all he can see is the effects of God's presence in the room. Um, The Bible says that no man can see God and live. And so there, he doesn't even see the Lord directly. He can just see the effects of God's presence, and it shatters the room. Everything is shaken. The voices are deafening as the angels sing out. 
The, the temple is shaking. The room fills with smoke. And it says this in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me. In Hebrew, what Isaiah literally says is, I'm a dead man. When he says woe, he doesn't mean like, uh-oh. He means, I'm done. That's literally what it means. I'm done. I, it is over for me. Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the presence of God, instantly, Isaiah realizes his place. And in the power and the majesty that fills the room, he assumes he's done. But what we see in both of these stories is that neither Isaiah nor Job were done. That in this moment, they realized their complete inadequacy. But it's in their inadequacy that God shows up big time. It's in Job's inadequacy. When he says, I had heard of you, but now I see you. I knew of you, now I know you, and I despise myself But it's in that poorness of spirit and that total feeling of inadequacy where God restores everything Job had ever had and more. Job experiences blessings that you and I can't even fathom. In this moment when Isaiah says, I am done. My inadequacy is too great. I am too poor to stand in the presence of God and live. It's in that moment, in that poorness of spirit, where God turns the tables, brings forgiveness on Isaiah's life, and then commissions Isaiah for a powerful and special ministry that would change the face of his nation. It's in those moments, in that attitude of inadequacy, that we experience God in a whole in a whole new way. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Um, I, I wrote a few things down that uh, observations that I, I want to. I'm just going to read them to you. It's a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It's a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. Being poor in spirit, it's a sense of moral uncleanliness before God. It's a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It's a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. Here's one key to those statements that repeated over and over. It's a sense. A sense of uncleanliness. A sense of inability powerlessness a sense of impoverishedness before God because here's the key everybody is poor in spirit all of us are but not everybody is blessed not everybody counts their life as blessed not everybody can count their life as happy in God's economy Because it's not just about being poor in spirit, because we all are. It's about knowing it and feeling it. And that's why we tied the first beatitude to the second one that says this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
The blessed people are those who feel keenly their inadequacies. And verse 4, those who mourn, is that subjective outworking of those who are poor in spirit and know it. Everybody's poor in spirit before God. But not everybody's blessed because most people don't see it. Because most people have been taught that seeing yourself as inadequate is a weakness. And seeing and identifying need in your own life is a weakness that should be fought against, hidden away. Uh, You should do everything in your power to overcome it. Because it's a crutch. And if you really want to be blessed and you really want to be happy, you have to get rid of the crutches. This idea of mourning and, and being poor in spirit, I think, is best illustrated in a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. It's going to be on the screen, but I'm, it's going to be in verse 18. I'm going to start in verse 9. Chapter 18, excuse me, I'm going to start in verse 9. And, and Jesus is a fan of telling parables. They're stories to illustrate a point. And, and here he tells a story. And it said this in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who, listen to this, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They, there was no poverty in them. There was no poor in spirit. They were, they were rich in spirit. They had everything they needed and they had done it themselves. And it says this about them as well. And they treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's a religious ruler of Jesus' day. And the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is Jesus, his analysis of that story. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, that Pharisee, that religious, re- religious leader, never, never received God's blessing. He never was able to count his life as truly blessed and happy in the way that the world works in God's economy because in his mind, he had earned his right place before God. That even in the midst of praying and in God's presence, he could actually have the audacity to pray, God, thank you you didn't make me like this guy. Thank you that I'm better than him. Yet the tax collector, who was the scum of society at that time, didn't even feel worthy to lift his head to face heaven. And Jesus said it was that man who went home justified. It's that man who was made right with God. It's that man who can go to bed at night and count his life as blessed. He may not have the position that society says he should pursue or dream of. But he has what matters most. Because in the end, he finds himself at the best place in God's economy. Or or as Matthew says a lot in his writings, in, in the kingdom of heaven. 
that the roles are reversed. And Jesus says, if you really want to be blessed, if you really want to be happy, if you really want to count your life for something, you have to rethink what you believe about your value, about what matters most, about how you pursue things and what it is that you pursue. Because I tell you, blessed are those who see their impoverished state before God. Blessed are those who mourn, those who, who understand how poor they are. And it comes out in the way they interact with others and interact with God. Because those are the people, those are the people who are going to be blessed. It wasn't until Job's confession and his acknowledgement of who God was and his place before him that he received his blessing. It was after Isaiah confessed his own sin and the sin of his people, knowing what that meant before a holy God. That's when Jesus stepped in and gave him a mission to accomplish in his life. But as long as we look at ourselves and think, hey, at least I'm better than that person. Hey, at least I'm not a jerk like the guy in the cubicle next to me. At least, at least I've got more morals than the person across the street. As long as we look at others to try to justify ourselves, as long as we think that it's all about us and our type A hard work that can earn God's love and respect, we'll miss it. But it's the poor in spirit. It's those who are in need. It's those who don't have enough. It's those who can't do it on their own. It's those who can't sustain their life on their own. Those are the ones who find themselves blessed because it's in that need that Jesus shows up most evidently. Standing before these same religious leaders at another point in Jesus' ministry, they were accusing him. As a matter of fact, it happens right after, in Matthew, right after the Beatitudes. and um, They're accusing Jesus of, of the way him and his disciples are, are doing things and living life. And Jesus says that I didn't come, or that he says this, that the sick are the ones who need a doctor, not the healthy. Now the, the point of Jesus' statement is that we're all sick. But it's only until you recognize that you're sick that you go to the doctor. Jesus said, I'm, for, I'm here for those, not who think they're better off without me, who think they've got it all together. I'm here for those who know they don't. And those are the ones I came to heal. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for our time together. We're always so grateful to be together in your presence with with others who believe and embrace who you are. And God, I pray that just in these closing moments this morning that you would speak to us, that you would encourage and comfort and challenge each one of us. I want you to keep your eyes closed, if you would, uh, just right where you are this morning. There are two types of people. Um, we've identified them in different ways. There are disciples. There are those who've given up their lives to follow Jesus. And then there are those who haven't. Those who have given up their lives to pursue Jesus understand that there's nothing about their life that's going to save them, that's going to fix them. 
They walk away from it to follow Jesus. For some people in the Bible, that was literal. They walked away from homes and jobs and their families and their hometowns and they literally gave up everything to literally follow Jesus wherever he went for many people in the Bible that meant um, walking away from and giving up their lives and the idea of what they valued what they pursued what they wanted to follow Jesus so there are disciples there are followers of Christ who have given up everything and then there's those who haven't Maybe, maybe you haven't because you don't believe Jesus. You, 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 you don't believe in, in everything that the Bible teaches. Maybe you haven't just because you're scared. You're scared about what it'll mean for you if you, you give up your life and follow Jesus. For those who would call themselves followers of Christ, the Beatitudes are a celebration. You've already acknowledged that you don't have what it takes. You can't save yourself and it's only when you come to that place that you say I can't save myself I can't do it alone I don't have what it takes when you recognize that you allow Jesus to come in and save you that's when you find the blessing that, that just like the Beatitude said that, the, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven that God will come in and reign in your life both now and in eternity. And if you haven't done that, Jesus' teaching is an invitation to you to examine your own life, your own heart, to recognize that you're, you're impoverished on your own. Even if you are a hard worker and you never stop you have a little bit of luck and by the world's definitions you're blessed and happy you have everything anyone could ever ask for or want the bible says that your life is like a vapor it's here one moment gone the next and everything you work for will be gone in a not too distant future so even if you can amass a lot of stuff, it doesn't last. But what Jesus gives in His reign lasts forever. Where are you this morning? Are you a follower of Christ who needs to hit the reset button? Say, I, I do believe in Jesus. I have given Him my all, but at times I try to take some of it back. I try to, I try to pursue things that that aren't of utmost value. And I need to hit the, hit the reset button and, and kind of re-examine my life and get back on track. Maybe for you today, you say, I'm not a follower of Christ. I've, I haven't given it all up to follow Him. But today, I, I recognize I'm in need. I recognize I don't have what it takes to save myself, to fix myself, and I need Jesus to come into my life. The Bible says that if you believe in Him, if you believe you'll confess if you'll believe that Jesus is Lord and confess that God raised him from the dead you'll be saved you can become a follower of Christ you can give it all up to follow him would you do that today
right now. There's no fancy words, no magic words, no special formula. Just in your heart, you cry out to God and say, I don't have what it takes. I'm not enough. I can't do it. I need you. I'll give it up to follow you. I believe in you. I trust you. I confess you to be my king. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you uh, that you've preserved your teachings for us so that even 2,000 years later, they still impact us. They're still relevant. They still speak to every part of our lives. Lord, would you do what only you can do in this moment, in this place, and that's to reach in and change and soften and transform hearts and minds and lives. Lord, we know that Sometimes your blessing is, uh, is, is deep inside and it's spiritual and emotional and uh, mental. And sometimes, Lord, we know that your blessings are very physical and that you love to give good gifts to your people. And God, we know that, that, that money's not evil, that possessions aren't evil, that success and promotions aren't evil. But, but Lord, we just want you to grab a hold of our hearts so that what matters most is not those things, but you. So that everything else that comes our way, we can count as a blessing from you. Lord, continue to move and to speak in this place. 